And let us pray together the collect of the day. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, here we are. Did you notice it's the first Sunday of Lent? Hopefully so. If not, you haven't been paying attention. Many things change, right? The color of the altar and pyramids go to purple. Um, we use morning prayer because it begins penitentially and prepares us as we hear those words of the Venite to listen and not harden our hearts to the word of God. This morning I want to ask you, did you ever go back to your first school or maybe your first house or maybe your first college experience or your only college experience? Going back to the beginning does things for us, doesn't it? What happens when we go back to those first places? Have you ever done that? The memories come flooding back, right? That creak of that step, the way the sun hits that piece of architecture. It brings us back to the beginning. And one of the things that you've probably noticed in the readings today is that we're brought back to the beginning. Back, not just to the beginning in Genesis, but back to the basics of the faith. That's very intentional, in fact, as we look here at the three readings, we see the basics of Christianity. Number one, we see that God created a good world, but that man gave over his dominion to the devil. Number two, we see that sin and death are both general and very specific. Number three, we see that Christ has saved us from our sins. And number four, we see that Lent is actually not a time for self-help, but a time to be helped as we just prayed together. Let's look at the beginning. Look with me at the Genesis passage. In Genesis 2-4, we see God is the creator and creates paradise. In 2-7, we see God forms Adam from the dust and gives him life by breathing into his nostrils. In 2.16, we see God gives man dominion over this world. In 3.4, we see the serpent deceive Eve. In 3.6, we see Adam and Eve rebel against God, committing that first trespass, that first sin. If we have any doubt about what happened, St. Paul explains precisely what happened theologically, metaphysically in the universe. These events were not just particular to Adam and Eve, right? But they're the story of mankind. As St. Paul explains in our epistle today, Romans chapter 5. I invite you to look at it with me, 5, 12 through 14. 
St. Paul writes, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to excuse me, to come. Adam's sin opens the door and brings sin and death into the world for all of the descendants of Adam and Eve. In Psalm 51, the psalmist cries out. We sang it today, and one of the uh, parts, I love Anglican chant, and I, I like doing it, but one of the things that I dislike about it is sometimes it obscures the meaning of what we're singing, because we're too busy focusing on the singing. So look with me at Psalm 51 in your bulletin. It's also in the scripture insert. Psalm 51, verse 5, specifically. The psalmist writes, Behold, I was brought forth in wickedness, and in sin my mother conceived me. The psalmist cries out in lament that this sin of Adam and Eve has reached down and touched him. This is the Christian answer, friends, to the question, if God created the world, why is there wickedness in the world? And why do I sin? If God created the world and the world is good, why do I sin and why is there wickedness and evil in the world? Our Anglican Catechism points to today's readings answering that question and says, quote, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, thus bringing upon all humanity pain, toil, alienation from God and each other, and death. I have inherited this fallen and corrupted human nature. Consequently, I too sin and fall short of God's glory. During the season of Lent, one of the things we do is lament original sin and all of its effects. War, toil, disease, and death. In a few minutes, we're going to pray what's called the Great Litany and pay attention to all the things that are itemized, if you will. You know, some of you are doing your taxes right now, right? This is the itemized version, not the standard version as we pray the Great Litany. We're looking at each and everything that we're asking God to spare us from and deliver us from. A whole host of things brought by original sin. Adam was given dominion or rule over creation. We see that in Genesis 2.16, but he traded that inheritance for the forbidden fruit that Eve was deceived into eating and that she gave to him and he ate. Look with me at Genesis 3.6. I'm sure you know the story, but again, it's good to return to the basics. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then both their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together 
and made themselves loincloths. So ends this morning's reading. Adam and Eve, in addition to rebelling against God, traded their dominion for death. Or maybe it's best to say as the result of their rebelling against God, traded the gift that he'd given them of their dominion for death. You know, this is why Satan tempts Jesus with dominion. I actually had never put that together till this week, till I was reading these, these readings together. But in the gospel lesson, how does Satan tempt Jesus? In multiple ways, right? He tempts him with food. He tempts, the, he tempts him with um, power. He tempts him with dominion, right? Look with me at the gospel passage today. This is from Matthew chapter 4 at the end. Verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What is that? It is Jesus' right to command the angels, and yet Satan's tempting him with that, right? Tempting him to abuse his right. Jesus answers him with scripture. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus is here being tempted with Adam's inheritance. But of course, it's ironic because Jesus has the right to Adam's inheritance, as St. Paul makes clear. Jesus is the second Adam, the obedient son, but he's also more. And so we see the generic side of sin, the general side of sin. Sin bringing fall and sin bringing all of this evil and wickedness into the world. But secondly, in these scriptures, we see the specific parts of sin. We've already read a little bit from Psalm 51, but what's going on in Psalm 51? David is lamenting deeply his sin, right? David, the psalmist, is lamenting deeply his sin. Look at verses 2, 3, 9, and 11. 2, 3, 9, and 11. Wash me thoroughly from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin, says David. Verse 3. For I acknowledge my faults and my sin is ever before me. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And finally, curiously, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guilt, O God the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. What's David lamenting specifically here? Well, scholars tell us that Psalm 51 is actually written about King David's sin with Bathsheba. You recall the story from Kings. David, and rather, I'm sorry, from 2 Samuel, verse 11. King David takes Bathsheba sleeps with her, has her husband killed, and she conceives a son. And because of his sin, 
that son is born and dies after being born. So do you see this sin in Psalm 51 is not just general for David. It's specific. This blood guiltiness, blood guiltiness is not just the wages of sin, which are death. This is the blood on King David's hands of his own son, who is the casualty of his very specific sin. This too, in one way or another, is our story, both generally and specifically. You and I are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. If you do even the slightest examination of your conscience, you'll see that you have those particular sins that you commit every day. And so do I. I've met people who think that sin is something they could never do. I've met nominal Christians who think that they don't sin. It's really a bizarre thing. They've actually told me, I don't sin. I don't need to confess or be forgiven. I'm one of the good people. But, you know, part of the reasons that we say the Ten Commandments each month in the Anglican liturgy and that we pray the Great Litany today is to help us not just bewail and lament the general sin, but see and lament and weep over our specific sin, the sins that we do commit every day. When King David says, my sin is ever before me, he's actually demonstrating a maturity and understanding that we often don't grasp. St. Augustine says that the holier he becomes, the more sanctified he becomes, the closer he becomes to God, the more his sin is ever before him. And so that should make us pause and take note. One of the first theologians of the church, of a philosopher by the name of Justin Martyr, wrote, quote, being pressed down by our sins, we cannot move upward towards God. We are like birds who have no wings and are unable to fly. Like birds who have no wings and are unable to fly. Look at verse 15 in the epistle reading today. But the free gift is not like the trespass, says St. Paul. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Here's the good news. Our trespass, our sins, both specific and as part, as fallen human nature, are not the end. Thank God. Christ has saved us from this sin and these sins. And this is good news for us and for all people who God has intervened on behalf of. In history, God sends Jesus Christ to intervene for mankind. Look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Through the Holy Spirit, God has also intervened in your life and mine. Some of us remember that initial intervention. Some of us do not. But whether you remember it or not, it happened to you in your baptism. 
the Holy Spirit intervened in your life and changed things forever. Jesus Christ has justified you and me. He has made you righteous. He has freed you from your sin. He's taken that sin away. In a sense, building on Justin Martyr, he's given you wings. And yet, even that doesn't express it properly because he lifts us up. It's only by his grace that we're able to approach God. Jesus Christ has justified you. And so we go as followers of the gospel seeking Jesus, being saved by Jesus, and resisting every temptation so that we can be closer to Jesus. So why here are we back at the basics? Why the beginning of Lent? The reason is that all of us need to go back to the basics before we enter Lent. Finally, because Lent is not a time for self-help, but a time to be helped. Friends, if you're using the season of Lent to just become a better person, if you're treating it as a New Year's resolution, you're missing the point utterly. What did we pray at the beginning of this sermon? Who is it that saves us? Christ, who is mighty to save, not you by doing some devotion, or you by doing some work, that's not the point of Lent at all. In fact, that undermines salvation. Many of us go about Lent all wrong. We try to give up things, and we try to change our habits on our own. But what people do wrong is that they treat Lent that way. They treat it as if they're by themselves, as if by my will and my power and my might, I am going to be a better person. That's not what Lent's about. Rather, Lent is about being helped by the grace of God. So before you choose your discipline or your fast or your new devotion, and maybe some of you already have, some of you are more prepared than others, but even if you've already done so, stop and consult. Consult the one who is the helper, who is not you who is the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us that he's given us the Holy Spirit to be our helper. He's the spiritual architect, not you. Don't take his job on yourself. Frankly, you're not qualified, and neither am I. Before you choose that discipline, consult the Holy Spirit. Invite him to do something to help you this Lent, rather than resolving to do something to help yourself this Lent. Ask the Holy Spirit to point out something that's hurting your relationship with God. Then fast and pray over that thing or things and let him lead you to an action, whether it's abstaining or studying or almsgiving or a combination of all of them. But let him be in that driver's seat. Let him be the architect of your Lent. This both it's not that you're doing this to help yourself be worthy to God. It's that God's doing this to make you into his image. This is good news. The pressure is not on you. The pressure is on the Holy Spirit. What am I talking about? Let me give you a couple examples. 
For example, if the Holy Spirit points out that you're indulging yourself too much with going out to eat or with going out to the bar, then make a goal of abstaining during Lent and not just doing that, but take that money and spend it and save it and give it, rather, to the poor. Put it in your alms box or put it in a separate account so that you can donate it to the poor. Another example, if you believe the Holy Spirit's calling you to make prayer more of a priority, set your goal on, an, on the alarm on your cell phone and then tell a friend or a family member to whom you can be accountable. Perhaps the Holy Spirit's leading you to spend more time with other people instead of the many distractions that our culture gives to us. Maybe you're called to give up social media or maybe you're called to give up Netflix or a certain show in Netflix. Don't just give that up, but take that time and do it for something else. Maybe you'll take that time and volunteer. Maybe you'll take that time that you would see that or view that and deliberately read a different book. You see, friends, we never outgrow the basics and we need to return to the basics of the faith in order to move forward. Lent, historically, was the time for people preparing for baptism to be brought into the way of Christ, to be brought into the way of discipleship. Why do we do these things? Not to make us better people, although that's a great byproduct, but to make us better Christians to make us better disciples of Jesus, to make us able to hear the leading of the Holy Spirit better. And so here we return to that very beginning, to that sin, to that grace, to that life, the one that we commit, the other that we've, that's given to us as a free gift. John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, writes this. He says, This is faith, a renouncing of everything we're apt to call our own and relying wholly upon the blood, righteousness, and intercession of Jesus. A Lent that is not led by the Holy Spirit is a Lent that leads to failure, despair, and even worse. As you go forward in Lent, do remember this. Number one, while you were created for good, you are a sinner, and you're in constant need of God to lift you up. This is the reality. This is really important because it keeps building in us that virtue of humility. Number two, God has freed you from that sin. He's freed you from being dominated by the devil and sin. He has won for you the victory over those sins and death, both general and specific. This is important because it builds in you the virtue of hope. And our hope in Jesus Christ is never in vain. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.